you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn for the penultimate time to the book of 2 Samuel. If you don't know, penultimate means second to last. And we're going to be looking at the second to last chapter or a portion thereof of 2 Samuel, that is 2 Samuel 23. We have spent uh, a good many months in this book together. I trust it has been of a benefit to you as it is God's Word. And next week we will finish up uh, our time in this Old Testament book. And then after our missions conference, which will meet the week after that, we will begin a journey in the Gospel of John. But all of God's words in all of His Bible are inspired and are for our benefit. And so I would ask that you would please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. For the Word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. This morning we're going to look at 2 Samuel 23, the first seven verses. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For, he will, not, for will He not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns, that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That even as we study your word and look to it, that your spirit would illuminate our minds. That we would see the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see the glory of his kingdom. And that in that, we would long to be with him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Last words are important especially when they're planned. We even have a saying for it, don't we? We speak about famous last words. The nature of last words is that they are to be remembered. If we think about it in the Bible, we might think of Jacob and his last words to his sons, his prophecy to his sons. We might think about Moses speaking to all of Israel on the outskirts of the promised land as they were about to cross in to the promised land where he knew he could not. Maybe you have received some last words from someone who is near to you, dear to you, a beloved one. Something 
that you remember many years later. Words of encouragement, words of hope, words of direction. Here David looks back at how the Lord has blessed him. And he gives his final official words. It is likely that these are not the last words that ever crossed David's lips. If we go to 1 Kings chapter 2, we see what appear to be later words, private words to David's son Solomon. But these are the last official proclamation words of King David. They were meant to be distributed through all the nation. They were meant to be recorded in this text. They were meant to be read by you and me. This is important for us because David is giving us a prophecy of the fulfillment of the kingdom. And that is what we look forward to. So let's look back to David to see what the Lord will do in establishing his kingdom. We see three things about the kingdom here this morning in this text. We see first that it is a sure kingdom, a kingdom that is certain. Secondly, we see that it is a glorious kingdom. It is a kingdom filled with glory. And then thirdly, we see that it is a covenantal kingdom, that it is a kingdom founded on the covenant promise of God. Well, let's begin then by looking at how David describes for us that this kingdom is a sure kingdom. Before David gets to his prophecy, he tells us a bit about himself. And there's a reason for that. It's not because we don't know who David is. After all, we have spent many a month learning about King David. Several years ago, we went through the book of 1 Samuel. So we know an awful lot about David. There are many, many words written about David in the Bible. But David is doing this with a purpose in mind. He wants us to understand that as he speaks about the kingdom, it is not theoretical. It's not vague. It is personal. The kingdom of God is personal for David. And he wants it to be personal for you and for me as well. David wants us to know that he has been changed by the Lord. And Right here we see David open up in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David takes us from his humble origins to his exaltation by the Lord. And this is a good, brief example of how you can share about the Lord. You can start with what He has done for you. You don't need to have memorized huge swaths of the Bible. You don't need to be professionally or theologically trained. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you have a story to tell of what God has done for you. And that's what David opens up with here. He reminds us that he is from an obscure family and a backwater town. You see, that escapes us, I think, sometimes when we come to the text. He is the son of Jesse, Jesse of Bethlehem. And we tend to think that these are famous matters. But you remember the story. God sent Samuel out to a town that was so small, it wasn't even included in the military census for Judah. 
So when Judah would call up all the men to arms, Israel didn't have a standing army. They would call up men from various cities, various towns. They would have all of the towns named and numbered how many men should come from each place. Bethlehem wasn't even on the list. It's so small. It's a backwater town. It's a place people don't know about. I have this all the time. I just, I just had this this morning. I spoke with someone and I said, well, where are you going? And he named a town in Texas for me. And maybe he saw my eyes go to the back of my head. I have no idea where that is. There are hundreds of towns in the state of Texas that I couldn't even tell you if they're in the south, the west, the east, or the north, let alone exactly how to get there. That doesn't make them unimportant. It actually makes it a lot like Bethlehem. A lot like us. A small place. An obscure place. And you remember that Samuel came and he gathered up Jesse and his sons. Now, we think of Jesse as someone who's famous. Because after all, how many times in our Bibles do we read about Jesse? David, the son of Jesse. Jesse in the line of Jesus. But you have to remember that Jesse was an awful lot like you and me. He was probably, for his day, considered middle class. He wasn't poor. He had land. He had livestock. But he wasn't a prince. He wasn't a king. He didn't live in a big city. He didn't have power. He was a lot like you and me. I don't know what kind of alarm clock Jesse used to rouse himself from slumber. Maybe a rooster. But I can tell you that I bet Jesse on many given days wanted to push snooze. But he had to get up. Because he had to work. Because he wasn't a man of leisure and fame. And then you remember that Samuel asked Jesse to bring all of his sons out. And Jesse did all except David. Jesse didn't think David was important enough to even bring at Samuel's request. He's out with the animals. He's the youngest. He's the smallest. He's, if you will, the red-headed, not quite stepchild of the family. He's the least important one of a less important family in a tiny town. That's who David was. It's as if David was saying to us in our terms, I grew up poor down by the railroad tracks. That's who I am. If I passed by you, you never would have looked twice at me. And those origins are important because of where David is now. You see, David says that he was raised on high, anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. You see, the Lord has raised up David. And that word raised up means he was established. He was set on high. He was put on this place by the Lord God himself. David did not stay in his humble origins or his position because God was gracious to him. God lifted him up and set him on high. He was made king over Israel. He was the anointed of the Lord. But he was also chosen to provide songs for the praise of God. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. It was not that the Lord had made him wealthy or famous... The Lord made him a prophet and a king. If God can do that, what can't he do? If he could take a young man from an obscure town and raise him up to be a prophet of God and the king of God's people, what is impossible for God? 
That's what David wants you to see here. That he is exhibit A of God's power. That God's kingdom is sure. There is no lapse in God's power. There is nothing that is beyond his reach. Well, why is David so sure about this kingdom? Why does he exalt in this? David then begins to explain more about where his words come from. Look with me at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. David tells us that his words are not his own. They come from another. Do you know that when politicians speak today, their words are not their words? You know, it doesn't matter what your politics are. It doesn't matter who your favorite president is. It doesn't matter how far you go back. Politicians have their words written for them by others. Speechwriters give them their words. They don't come up with it on the cuff. Even before the days of teleprompters, there were notes. There were speech cards. And David wants you to see that when he speaks, that's an analogy of what he's doing. His words are not his words, they are God's words. The Spirit of the Lord is speaking through him. The rock of Israel is speaking through him. God himself speaks. And David here is letting us in on one of the most important doctrines in all of the Christian faith. That of the verbal inspiration of the scriptures. The Bible is not just some guide to life, although it is. The Bible does not just contain good advice for us, although it does. The Bible does not contain a philosophy or a teaching. No, the Bible is the sum of the very words of God. David starts by calling this an Oracle, the oracle of David in verse 1. And this word oracle is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And it is virtually always used to speak of the declaration of the Lord. There are only three exceptions. Here, in the book of Numbers, where Balaam speaks when God puts his words in that wicked prophet. And once in the book of Proverbs. Everywhere else, the word oracle means the very word of God. But then David's even more explicit. He says, the Spirit speaks by me. And then he gets even more explicit. His words are on my tongue. These are God's words, not David's words. These are words that we turn a deaf ear to at our peril. It's not just the concepts but the words themselves that come from the Lord. David does not speak for himself. He speaks as a messenger for the Lord. And so therefore, when David speaks, he is certain. Nothing is lost in the translation. David doesn't want us to miss this. There's even a Trinitarian emphasis in the text. You will notice that the Spirit speaks, and then the God of Israel, that I take to be the Father, speaks. And then the rock of Israel speaks. And you know who the rock of Israel is. Paul tells us that that rock was Jesus, who followed the Israelites in their wanderings in the wilderness. The whole Trinity here is speaking through David. 
That's why the Bible is so important to us. It's God's word. It's not philosophy. It's not good advice. Peter tells us exactly what the word of God is. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't that make a difference to you? Is the Bible a source of certainty and hope for you? It should be. Because it's God's word to you. David then moves on from the introduction to the prophecy proper And he tells us that this kingdom is not only sure, founded on the very words of God, but it is a glorious kingdom. The introduction was there to remind us that what David says is true and we can rely on it. And so David is now describing not just his own kingdom, not just his family's dynasty, but God's kingdom. So who is the ruler of whom... David speaks in verse 3, one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Now, if David were making a political statement, what should a king be like? What's a good quality in a leader? Why would he have all this emphasis on inspiration and on the inerrant word of God and on the spirit speaking through him? If he were just offering an experienced king's advice about how not to mess up when you're a ruler. No, David wants us to look past him to the Messiah, to David's greater son. Now we've seen this before in chapter 7 when God makes a covenant with David and he tells David that his kingdom will be everlasting. The reason David's kingdom is everlasting is the one who will rule is himself everlasting. The Messiah, the one who will come from David, the Lord Jesus Christ, will reign forever and ever, and therefore his kingdom will have no end. So, as we hear David speak, for us this is not history about Israel. This is expectation of what we long for, of what we desire to have come to pass. So what is this kingdom like? The first thing that David tells us is that justice is important in the kingdom. One rules justly over men. The Messiah's kingdom will be one of righteousness and justice. And that justice is actually defined ruling in the fear of God. Now what does that mean? The word fear here, you've seen it before, has a sense of reverence and awe of obedience to the one that we fear. That's important. Justice is not just left out there hanging abstractly. Our problem today is not that we do not want justice as a society or as a culture. No, our problem is we can't define justice. That's the problem. So often we define justice as something we want as something we desire. We say there's no objective standard, and we argue with each other about justice, but the truth is, David tells us here, that justice is objective. It is reverence toward God. That is, it is doing the will of God. 
If you want to know if something is just, you look at God's word to see if it lines up with his word and his will. And where do we see this kind of justice? Anywhere better than in the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus came to do the will of God. Jesus says in John 4, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish the work. That's what Jesus lived on, was to do the will of God. In John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And where do we see this more clearly than in the garden? When at His darkest moments, Jesus says, Not my will, but your will be done. The glory of the kingdom is that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That God's will is done by the king of the kingdom. He is righteous in all his ways. He is just. But the kingdom is not just righteous. It's more than that. Next, David goes on in verse 4 to give us a word picture. He says, he, that is the ruler, dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David is drawing here on images of beauty. The sun rising. The sun breaking through the rain clouds as they pass away. If you're anything like me, you've never seen anything more beautiful than when you're driving on a long, mundane ride through flat land and the clouds begin to break and the sun comes through the clouds you see the beams shoot down from heaven to earth it's like heaven is coming down to earth the beauty is indescribable when you see that I don't know how you could doubt the creation of all things by the Lord God It's wonder and it's beauty. That's what David wants you to have a picture of in your mind. That the rule of the Messiah in the kingdom has that kind of beauty to it. It makes you breathless. You can't take your eyes off it. You wonder how you could possibly take in more of it. You hope it will never end. That's how beautiful it is. Why is this kingdom beautiful? David gives us a further explanation of why the kingdom is beautiful. The kingdom is beautiful because the king is beautiful. This is important for us to remember. Because, you see, we often talk about respecting our leaders because of the office. We talk about no matter which side of the political divide we're on and who is the president of the current year, we say we have to show respect to the president because of the office of the presidency. And there's something to be said for that. We might even put it in David's terms that it's the office of the presidency that gives the man some measure of beauty, of respect. But that's not the case here in the kingdom. It's actually the exact opposite. The kingdom is beautiful 
The office of the king is beautiful because of who the king is. Because the king is the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives beauty and wonder and awe to all things because of his character, because of his acts and his deeds, because of who he is. David tells us that the Messiah is so wonderful that we long to live where he is. Do you think about that? It should not be that you desire to live in heaven and Jesus just happens to be there. No. We only want to be in the kingdom because Jesus is there. We want to be where Jesus is. He is the attraction. He is the beauty. He is what we seek. We don't seek everlasting life. We don't even seek sinlessness. We seek Jesus. And everything else flows from Him. Jesus is the one who brings light. He is the one who scatters the darkness. With Jesus in our midst, now we can see we are no longer afraid anymore. Jesus tells us in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in verse 12, in chapter 12, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the one who brings life to our lights, light, lives. Without Jesus, we're in darkness. We're lost. But with the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how dark your circumstances are, no matter how difficult the trials are that are before you, you are not lost in the dark. You are not without hope. You are not alone. You are a child of the King. Jesus also brings life. That's the picture of the rain here in the second half of verse 4. He makes the grass sprout from the earth. It's rain that makes this grass sprout. The image is of rain that falls down on the dry earth and causes it to revive and grow. Now, you live in Texas. You know exactly what I'm talking about. On those July or August days when the grass starts to get a bit brown and you wonder if it's going to make it or if you're going to have to put some sod down and then a good rain comes in and it becomes greener almost immediately and life comes back to the lawn and it begins to sprout up. We recognize this in the rain. You know, I think it's somewhere in the Federal Registry that every dad, when he sees a rain like this, has to look up to everyone around him and say, you know, we really needed that rain. I know I do it. I fulfill my constitutional duty. And that's the truth, though, isn't it? We needed that rain because the rain brings life. And David's telling us, that's a picture of Jesus. He doesn't just bring light, he brings life also. John tells us in 1 John 5, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. In John chapter 17, in his Gospel, John writes, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Those are Jesus' words 
to us. David is telling you that the kingdom of Jesus is not only sure, it is glorious. It is all you could ever want or need. And that is because Jesus is there. Do you want to be with Jesus? Or do you think something else will satisfy you? David has lived a long life. He's been through hard things. He's received the promises of God. And David tells you in God's word that all you could ever hope or ask for is King Jesus. Well, the truth is, however, that not everyone wants this sure and glorious kingdom. And so David concludes his prophecy with a view of two types of people. We're going to start by looking at the second type of people first that we read of in verses 6 and 7. If Jesus is compared to life-giving rain that causes grass to grow, these people are the opposite. They are worthless men, David says, who are like thorns. The word worthless here doesn't just mean that they're lazy or poor or good for nothing. It means that they are ungodly. They are literally of the devil. That's who they are. And these are the ones who reject the king and reject the kingdom. They do not believe David's testimony. They actually prefer darkness to light. They don't look for the light to break through the clouds. For them, light is trouble. It reveals their actions and their desires. John puts it this way in John 3, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so these rejectors of the kingdom, rejectors of the covenantal promise, they bring pain rather than flourishing. Instead of freshness and life, they bring pain and suffering. They have to be taken away with tools. Do you see that in verse 7? A man who touches them has to arm himself with iron in the shaft of a spear so that he can cut them off. And they're utterly consumed in the fire. You know what I'm talking about if you've ever done any kind of gardening or work in the landscaping, especially with roses or with other bushes that have thorns. If you were to garden for half a day in, a, in rose bushes without gloves, I have to tell you, I feel sorry for you. Because at the end of that time, you will come back with head, hands that are red, scratched, and probably bleeding. Because those thorns bring pain. You need gloves, you need implements, you need shears, you need clippers to be able to deal with them because in and of themselves they are painful. That is their nature. It's not an accident for them to cause pain. That is their purpose. We might put it this way. It's a feature, not a bug of the thorns. Well, they have to be taken away with tools because they fight the kingdom. But the good news of the gospel is, from John chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
They are not victorious. They cannot defeat the king. They resist the king. We see a wonderful picture of this in Psalm 2. Pastor King prayed in a summary of Psalm 2 about those who resist the king when they should be kissing him. They instead take up weapons against him. And what David tells us is those who do not submit will experience judgment. Do you see that at the end of verse 7? They are utterly consumed with fire. They're taken away and cast aside. Jesus says the exact same thing in Matthew chapter 13. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They did not want the kingdom. They do not want the king and therefore they will be cast out. So let me ask you this this morning. Where do you stand with the kingdom? Do you know the king? Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Because there's no neutrality with the king and his kingdom. If you're not for the king, you are against the king. You cannot be agnostic about Jesus. I know that that has become somewhat cachet in our day and age. That somehow we like, people like to say, well, I'm agnostic about heaven and hell. I'm agnostic about Jesus and God. I, I don't know. As if somehow they want to place themselves above the fray. I'm not a believer. I'm not an unbeliever. I just am not sure. David tells us there is no middle ground. You're either against the king and you're cast out. Or you are for the king. And you receive all of the blessings and promises he has to give. He has gone the full measure for you. Jesus has died upon the cross to free you from your sins. You must embrace him fully by faith. There are no halfway measures with Jesus. And that is the crux of it. The kingdom is for those who love the king. David tells us that in verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and secure. For, he will, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? We might have expected David to talk about all the things that he had done. All the ways that he had obeyed in opposition to those who had disobeyed God. Right? But that's not how David speaks. David instead remembers the covenant promise of God. He points us to God's covenant faithfulness. It's what God has done that matters. David's house stands secure because God has made an everlasting covenant with him. It is a promise God has made that secures David from himself. David cannot mess it up. The covenant is greater and more powerful than David's sin. We've spent many months now seeing David's sin front and center. We've seen the heartache, the pain, the loss. 
David's sin has had devastating effects on himself, on his family, and on his nation. But it has not changed God's grace. It can't undo God's promise. No matter what you have done, how you have failed, what you are afraid of, you can have hope in Jesus. Because God's grace in Christ is greater than all your sin. It may sound like just a very little thing to say, just believe in Jesus. But the power is not in you believing. The power is in Christ and in His work. By believing in Him, we apprehend His power and His work. His person and His work is mighty beyond anything we can imagine. He is God Himself. And that can be yours. Even today. David's last words are words you need to hear. They're words of hope and of encouragement. They're words that point you to the one who brings light and life to you. The Bible is God's word. And it brings the same message throughout all of its pages. Your only hope is to run to Jesus. And when you do, you will never be more secure. Let's pray.